I am very glad. Let me make sure I'm on. Yes, I am really glad. I was so look forward to it. And I feel particularly glad to be here this morning. First of all, there are a lot of things happening that I want to talk about. But I'm also glad that uh, I'm talking this morning and I'll be back next week. And that doesn't happen so much. And so I feel really excited because I had all these things I wanted to talk about. And I realized I don't have to rush to get them all finished in this one time. Besides, the truth is you never have to rush to get it all finished. Because there's only one Dharma talk that anybody ever gives. I wrote it down yesterday because I thought it's ridiculous to say the name of this talk is da-da-da. The name of all the Dharma talks is we're trying to really, what we're trying to do is to cultivate compassion, which arrives through vis wisdom and is uh, really the antidote, really the only, really antidote to the travail of being a human being in the world. That uh, anything other than a compassionate response to anything that happens is the beginning of trouble. That, to that, that the first noble truth is really true, that everyone into the life of everyone arises pain and difficulty. Not like the whole life is terrible. There are certainly moments of awe and wonder and splendor, but everyone is vulnerable to pain and difficulty. And to the degree that through in attentive, intentional attention, we really keep our minds open to what's going on. A phrase that I learned years ago, which I learned, I saw on a little uh, plaque in a national, in a, on one of those redwood burls and with mottos on it, said, life is so difficult. How can we be anything but kind? And so that's what I want to talk about. Life is so difficult to the degree that you see that. How can we be anything but kind? And that the secret it was written on a redwood burl on the mantelpiece of a building in which I took my first uh, mindfulness weekend retreat back in 1976, which is a whole story in itself. It was difficult and I was uncomfortable and I couldn't wait for it to be over. And uh, uh, a month or two later, I was on a plane to a 14-day silent retreat. And uh, the only thing that I'm sure of, oh, it isn't here among my photos. I'll, I'll try to find it. It's in a frame somewhere. It's a picture of me sitting with uh, 15 other people who were on that retreat, uh, a group a photo at the end of Sunday afternoon. And uh, uh I'm sitting there and I'm smiling at the end of it. And I remember only how terrible it was, but I think I must have had some intimation that what they were doing there was what I needed. Uh, and I, when I look back, I always thought that it was that little plaque on the mantelpiece that I passed going back and forth doing my walking meditation that said, life is so difficult. How can we be anything but kind? And I thought to myself, if that's what they teach here in this outfit, I could, that, that makes sense to me. I like that. The teacher whose home that retreat was at is now dead. Um, who knows what happened to everybody there. But I went to that two-week retreat 
up in the Pacific Northwest a couple of months later. And, uh, and here I am 47 years later, because that's what makes sense to me. Life is so difficult. How can we be anything but kind? You know, and it becomes more and more of a, um, of a practice for me to realize that first of all, that's true. And second of all, it's the kindest to myself to hold the world in compassion uh, because that holds me in compassion as well because it's a compassion based on the wisdom that everybody is doing the best they can and life is difficult just by itself. So I'm gonna start by talking about that and we'll see where I would go. And I have piles of stuff. So I'm thinking, oh good, I'm under no pressure of time. We can leisurely explore this today and next week. So there you go. This is part one of, what did I say the name of all Dharma talks of? Compassion via wisdom is the name of every Dharma talk. <laughs> Maybe we should make that the name of today's Dharma talk. Compassion via wisdom is the name of the game. But let's take a moment just to let ourselves settle here. You can keep your eyes open and look at the people. I'm going to do that for a few minutes and just look at various people and say, may you be well, may you be well. You'll discover if you do that, that you don't mean that less or more for, <laughs> for the people that you know and the people that you don't know. Oh, good. People are all turning their, no, they're not all turning their pictures on. Uh, okay because it's so much nicer to wish you well and look what's there. Maybe turn the picture on for a little bit if you can. And then I'll invite you to close your eyes and uh, make yourself comfortable. I find that my own instructions to myself are getting easier and easier. Mostly that's like, relax, let it go. And turn out the things that people said 40 years ago, like um, Ram Das, who said, be here now. Just relax. What's happening right now? If your room is quite quiet, you can listen to the silence. which always causes my body to present itself to me more clearly. 
people in various contemplative traditions have used the breath as a focusing object. Notice as you pay attention to the arising and passing of the breath, where that's most prominent for you. Do you feel it indeed around your nose where the air goes in? Often you hear instructions that call attention to placing the attention there. I mostly pay attention to my whole body expanding and then contracting back. Contracting is not the best word, relaxing back all by itself. Expanding and relaxing. Sometimes I feel that primarily in my rib cage as my arms move a little bit out to the side and my shoulders move up and down. Sometimes I feel it in my whole body as if I rhythmically take up more room in the world and then a little bit less. I push into the world and I relax back into the smaller space. I like that a lot, it suits me. And within that, there are always things that are interesting. I notice that my hands are warm or that they're cold or that they're whatever. This moment that they're warm. This moment that the places where my arms and my four, my upper arms and my forearms and my hands are alongside my body and on my thighs. Then I can certainly feel all of that move, but I can't so much feel where my body, where my torso meets my arms. The line is blurred a little bit. as is the line where my physical body, if it were to be measured, ends at my skin. And the whole world around it, the space around it right here in my chair. Sometimes it begins to feel like not disconnected at all from the entire breathing cosmos around it. Perhaps that's all we all are. Individual spots of vibrant energy and a great universe of vibrant energy. Like stars in the sky for as long as we're here. trading oxygen molecules with each other and with the trees.
in the Buddha's instructions for mindfulness. The instructions are let the attention rest with the breath and the breath in the body, with the awareness of pleasant and unpleasant, knowing that pleasant and unpleasant are always changing places with each other. It's pleasant and pleasant and pleasant. And then maybe your neck is a little tight or maybe your stomach rumbles. Maybe a thought goes in your mind that's a borderline troubling. memory. Maybe you're in a place where there's construction down the street and they periodically are jackhammering. You can hear that. If your instruction to yourself is relax, that's what's happening. It's okay. I can do this. What we're trying to do and what I wanted to particularly talk about this morning is developing a mind that doesn't need to cling on to anything. Things happen. They're pleasant. They're unpleasant. They're recognizable. And we have the capacity as human beings to say, this is what's happening. It's just arising. It will pass. I can do this. It's really a practice of encouragement. This is life and we can do it. I hope you find this a pleasant meditation. More and more I find teachers whose principal instructions are relaxing to this moment. Don't have a problem with it. There's nothing to solve. Meet it with awareness. And the training that we have is a training of recognizing what's going on and saying, okay, I'm making, I'm making a choice now of what I want to follow or be distracted with and whether I can stay in this stage of recognition and awareness. But ability to decide what should I do now and do that out of a place of equanimity. And when you're ready, open your eyes. We'll sit a little bit more later on. But I feel better having done that. Put up your hand if you feel better. <laughs> So that was, uh, I don't know, five minutes, 10 minutes, not that long. 
more and more, I think, as years go by, there's less and less to say other than the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. And, but really, that it's all about impermanence. And it's all about um, vulnerability. And it's all about life is so difficult. How can we be anything but kind? Yesterday, I have a whole pile of things that I've been saving, uh, pieces of the New York Times that I wanted to read to you, which I will, they're all piled up here. And then uh, yesterday, as I was putting this all together, I realized that I wanted to start with um, the fact that today, is the day before uh, Yom Kippur in the Jewish calendar. So probably many of you know this. Uh, it is uh, in, uh, in, uh, uh, in the Middle East now, it's already night. So the sun has set and it is already Yom Kippur. And Yom Kippur is the 10th day of the Hebrew calendar year, which, um, as a 12-month calendar that adjusts itself instead of leap, leap years with an extra day, it adjusts itself every certain number of, of years with a leap month. So it's like having a year that goes January, February, March, March, April, May. And so all of a sudden you get to do March twice and you fill up the extra days that, so that more or less Passover comes in the spring and uh, uh, Sukkot, which is the harvest festival, comes in the fall in the northern hemisphere. And the first day, then the, litur the liturgies amassed over all the years are quite beautiful for that. And uh, the, the uh, one of the most uh, incredibly touching of the liturgies is a liturgy uh, that's read both on Rosh Hashanah, which was 10 days ago, and Yom Kippur, which is tomorrow. And it's um, it goes back to the 11th century. And part of the liturgy is the cantor, the main singer, sings out. On Rosh Hashanah, it will be inscribed in heaven. It'll be inscribed on Rosh Hashanah, it will be inscribed, and on Yom Kippur, it will be sealed. How many will pass from the earth this year? How many will be created? Who will live and who will die? Who will die after a long life and who will die before their time? Who by water and who by fire? Who by sword and who by beast? Who by famine and who by thirst? Who by upheaval and who by plague? Who by rest and who by wander? Who will live in harmony and who will be harried? Who will enjoy tranquility and who will suffer? Who will be impoverished and who will be enriched? Who will be degraded and who, would be, who will be exalted? And it's a very uh, haunting and a strong melody that goes by it, that it gets sung by. Uh, my friend Rana Kabatsnik wrote a book called Who by Water um, a number of years ago 
I imagine you can find it online. Uh, her name is Rana Kabatsnik, and it's called Who by Water. And she wrote it uh, because she was in Thailand when they had the tsunami. And she was in Thailand uh, doing Buddhist practice in a monastery. She was in a long retreat in a monastery uh, near, near Bangkok. And she was also, um, she's also a, um, a PhD psychologist and also was connected to the Chabad uh, Jewish community in Bangkok. And uh, although she was not near the tsunami, the tsunami happened, you probably remember, and an incredible number of people died. And the rabbi in uh, Bangkok, the Chabad rabbi called her and said, Dr. Rana, could you come down? We have this tragedy. And, innumerable people have died and their relatives are here. And she went there and stayed there for a week and worked bringing solace wherever she could. And she wrote a book called Who by Water? Uh, because that was really by water. But I think what it does, and not but, and it evokes the awe of we don't know ever what's gonna happen, who by water. On that very, um, and everything has a personal string, uh, at that time, uh, a cousin of mine, cousins of mine who live in Canada, uh, had uh, a grown son who was going to veterinary school in Australia. And he uh, had gone to Thailand on a holiday. And they phoned him. He was on a he was on the beach in Phuket in a hotel, and they phoned him when they heard his parents phoned him, and he didn't answer the phone. And he didn't answer the phone, and he didn't answer the phone, and they, as you can imagine, were distraught about it. And they called uh, his airline to find out maybe he was already in an airplane and he had left, and maybe he was on his way back to Australia. And the airlines would not give out the manifest of the of the passengers because they don't. And you think all these thousands of people was one or another way tangentially aware that this terribly grievous thing had happened and that a lot, a lot of people were affected. Unexpectedly, they're having a holiday in Phuket. And with the end of the story, is uh, they called the uh, they called the embassy in Canada, in Canada, and they said you have to find this out for us because we're beside ourselves. And the end of the story is that he was on a plane and he was on his way home and he's fine. And another it was it was two thousand four, I guess that that happened. And so here you are, sixteen years later. But he could have been on the plane. And I was thinking yesterday that. Um, it's really true that we could have been anywhere. People were in the the the, the, the coverage of nine eleven struck me in much the same way because all of the many of the stories that I read included stories of we were just I we, I was late there was traffic so I didn't get to the building on time. There's this piece from. from the New York Times on that day. 
it says, um, it's led us to the editor. My travel agent saved my life. On September 11th, 2001, I was booked on a flight from Newark to San Francisco at 8 a.m. Around 10 o'clock the night before, my wonderful travel agent called to wish me a nice holiday. I thanked her and then said, I'm going to the West Coast. I'm going to the West Coast on vacation. Why do I have to get up at four o'clock in the morning to catch the flight? She replied, that's a good point. I'll take you off the eight o'clock and I'll put you on the 10 o'clock. That's what saved my life. I would have been on flight 93. You don't know. You don't know. And this is someone I don't know. And then I, uh, I got an email from my friend Gail's husband. And Gail is very dear to me. And Gail is a frequent practitioner at Spirit Rock. And uh, uh, it was an email to all his friends. And he said, by the way, Gail and I were in New York on 9-11. And we were scheduled to fly home from Newark. But uh, we decided it would be more convenient to leave from LaGuardia. And we were able to change our tickets at the last minute. So we got on the LaGuardia flight to San Francisco. And I think, ah, so I, it was a terrible with Yuri and being on Phuket. And now here is someone I know. And it's one of those moments where you realize that everyone is someone, everybody knows somebody. And when it happens to somebody that's within your kin or ken, and you hear about it, you think, this is really real. This is really happening. You really don't know. Every I'll see you tomorrow or I'll see you next week is, um, is a wish. And it's a hope. And mostly when we say that, it's an actuarial possibility. Um, but to, what if we really knew that we might not come home tonight? I really think that but maybe this is the year of my fixating on the phrase. It wouldn't be a bad phrase to fix that on. The, of the Buddha in the Dhammapada, where he says, everyone who understands impermanence ceases to be contentious. Isn't that great? If you know that you're not going to talk to anybody, this is the last time you're going to talk to somebody, you're not going to say to them, I'm so furious with you. That when they published the the uh, 20 years ago, the uh, texts of what people had left messages as their plane is obviously going to crash. Flight from flight, flight 93. Uh, everybody says variations of, I love you, take good care of yourself, take care of the children. Nobody says, I never liked your mother, or I always felt you weren't fair to me, or has a complaint at that point, or you never remembered my birthday. None of that stuff matters. I love you. Take good care of yourself. Take care of your children. You think, ah, and you never know. And I think it's really about learning impermanence and vulnerability. If, you, if you're alive, you're vulnerable to death, one way or another, sometimes surprising and sometimes. Also yesterday, I got an email from a good friend of mine um, in another state who uh, the first line of the email was,
and being told by my medical team that the hysterectomy I just had did not take care of everything. Ah. So, all right, so already you know that this is not a good, you know, this is not a good piece of news to have come. Person, the person I know for 40 years, a long time, and very dear to me. And then she writes, I am very grateful for the community for bringing food when I came home from the hospital for stopping when I could resume. And I'm, go I'm grateful to the friend who comes so early in the morning to get me to the hospital for more tests. And I'm extremely grateful to Mary for keeping the paperwork and records straight, a task at which I was never in my life competent. And I'm grateful to my housemates for being who they are and for my cat to meowing and leaping into my lap. I'm grateful to a friend back East who's considering coming here once I begin chemo. Whether or not it happens, the thought itself was nourishing. You know that somebody says, I'll take care of you or somebody takes care of you. One of the last things my friend Tamara said from her hospice in Florida, I probably told you, is in the middle of saying, I'm so, this dying process is taking so long. And uh, uh, my reassuring her, it's going to be all right, it'll happen. She stopped to say, wait a minute, I have to thank all my nurses. They're fixing the bed covers. My nurses are the best. Thank you so much. You're doing such a wonderful job to take care of and be taken care of and know that you're taken care of and know that you're being cared for. I don't know that there's a, a better thing. Uh, you know, that I, I, all right, we'll do a little more. I'm being told by my doctors that my hysterectomy I just had did not take care of everything. Ah. I had a phone call yesterday from a very dear friend of mine who said, I have COVID. She has, she's completely vaccinated. She wears masks. She takes care of herself. It happens. She has COVID. And she's completely vaccinated and I'm in touch with her. And it's uh, uncomfortable and she doesn't feel good. And she is in bed. But she's not in terrible pain and she's not terribly sick. And the best medical thinking about her is because she's fully vaccinated, she'll probably recover. But of course, she's worried about her husband and everybody that she saw in the last few days before her symptoms manifested and feeling concerned about having been even inadvertently maybe a passer of that. I think so much about um, the, the, the lack of awareness that people seem to have where they say, I never get sick, so I don't need to take that vaccine. And I think, you know, I, it, it's one of those things that my mind has trouble not um, not leaping into anger. I, I, 
it, it has a heart or it leaps, but get it brings itself back and says, okay, they're frightened, they're confused. I'm not going to mess up my own mind with anger, but please, it's not about I'm strong and I'm not going to get it. Other people are not strong and they are going to get it. We don't get vaccinated for ourselves. We get vaccinated for other people. The thing about that um, chart about um, cultivating virtue, which Toland has put up the link for, for all of you, is that all of those um, characteristics, they're paramis is what they're called in, in the language that the Buddha taught in. They're perfections, perfections of the heart. And they're all manifestations of kindness to oneself and to others. Oh, there's a chat from Toland. And she's, if so if you can, however, I don't know how, I don't know how people do. Toland, how do people do when that comes up in that chat? Do they, I don't know how to manifest that. Well, yeah, if they see that there, how do they make that show up in a chart? So they click that link that I put in that in the blue text there, that link, they click that link and it should open up to the chart where they can download it. Okay. Do they have to do it now or can they go back at the end? Um, as long as, yeah, they, they can, just, as long as they can just save that link, they can go back whenever they want. Okay. Well, somebody is raising their hand. They have a question. Who is having a question? Ah, wait, wait. That's all right. Oh, no. Nobody's having it. It's just, oh, that's, I just see what you could be having. If you were having a question, you could raise your hand. But I don't see anybody did. Okay. I just recently figured out what all those emoticons are. So yesterday actually was quite an event for everybody. Just Everybody had their own yesterdays. First of all, yesterday was getting over 9-11 and reading all up about that. And um, my friend who's his director me did not take care of everything. And my other friend who has COVID and the letters in the New York Times, which I'm soon going to read to you. And in the meantime, uh, for those of you in California or those of you who know about it, uh, Governor Newsom is not recalled. And that was a great relief. And I was pleased about that. And I thought, well, that's nice that my mind is, you know, really like this one is sick and this one is sick and that one is sick. Wow, that's a good thing. Uh, it is a very good thing, by the way. It would have, without making a political statement, which I'm not supposed to do, <laughs> so thinly veiled. <laughs> If you're a preacher from Spirit Rock, you're not supposed to have a political point of view. But these days, you can't not have, you can have, and say, well, I'm not having a political view, but I am for, um, <laughs> I support Black Lives Matter and women uh, uh, rights, uh, human rights. And what's that whole rubric? It's on people's front doors now, I'm happy to say. Uh, in this house, we believe that Black Lives Matter's women's rights are human rights. There are no humans are aliens. 
And uh, there's that whole list. I've forgotten all of them. But I'm eager to have one so I can put it on my front door. What if we all put them on the front door? Or what if we all put them on a sign and carry them around? Well, pe- a lot of people do. But, but um, to find that the mind could pick itself up in the middle and think, ah, something is good happening. And the Buddha did not say that good things don't happen. He said that painful things happen in everybody's life. Uh, uh, Life comes with pain and difficulty. Not that it doesn't come with awe and wonder and delight and amazement. Uh, There was a wonderful, where is it? There was a wonderful article in yesterday's newspaper uh, or the day before of an interview with Venus Williams uh, and uh, talking about her career as a tennis star for as long as it was, uh, and then her sister Serena being the reigning tennis player for so many years. And uh, Venus is saying, in terms of the, the, the interviewer is saying, they live such regular lives and they seem like such regular people. And they say, that's what my mother taught me, that, you know, you do the best you can and you live a regular life. And Venus Williams gave us her a formula for how do you once be a foremost tennis star and then not be. So you have to take care of the whole person. You have to be a whole person and take care of the whole person. And I thought that was such a wonderful teaching on impermanence from the two of them, especially in the just in the last week the new reigning champion and almost champion from the New York Open Tennis Tournament are two young women, neither of them uh, Americans, uh, who are 18 and 19 years old. And it's such a, uh, a, a Dharma teaching. If you, if you read the newspaper, it says, you know, it's, it's one form of my spiritual reading every morning. Not what happened, but what does this mean? It means that things pass. It means that at one point, these people were the reigning champions. And now these people are the reigning champions. And that's how it happens. And that you, to be able to live with the change and get used to it. We are all, there was a period of time when, I don't remember when, maybe in the 60s or 70s. And... uh, People began to use the phrase when you said, how are you? They'd say, I'm in transition. But I decided, you know, and it usually meant I've left my job or I've left my partner or I've moved to a new place. And I've decided that I could say, I am saying that now I'm in transition. Uh, You know, a year ago, my, and now that's not true, but we're all in transition. Every day we're in transition from thinking we know how we are to getting the phone call that says the results of the test are not so good or getting the result of somebody else who you hold dear is not so good. This is a very vulnerable thing to be alive. It's amazing when you think about it that people live to be 100. That's really amazing and more and cognate even. The two long stories, but I'm going to skip them because I want to get up to that. Uh, But I want to talk about, um, at this point, since life 
is difficult and challenging. Uh, but for the most part, we want more of it. There's something about somebody asked me recently, why do we go on? You know, it's this and it's that and it's this and that. It's so demoralizing. Uh, I went to, um, I had lunch last week on the second day of Rosh Hashanah with a friend of mine who lives in the Bay Area and her husband and five other people, uh, four other people, five, anyway, I was of the seven people at the lunch table, the next to the youngest. So you can imagine, (laughs) since I am 85, that means there were some very, very old people there. And um, I was born in 1936. And two of the other women there at that lunch table were born in 1936. Uh, And they were both born earlier in 36 than I was. So they counted as older than I. But one of them was born in Latvia, in Riga. And the other was born in Poland, in, in Warsaw. And both of them had really terrible stories of what happened to them during the Nazi period. And uh, another woman was uh, born uh, somewhere else, an an older woman who had been in such and such a camp and escaped from the camp. The other people were either in a camp or they were hidden in a basement or in an attic during the time of the war. And all of them obviously got to come to the United States. And... um, And it was the most cheerful lunch I can remember being at in a long time. They were so um, enjoying the fact that they were alive. They they were not so interested (laughs) in talking about the horrors of then. And one of them so amazingly, but uh, one of the other people asked her, how do you manage to do that? You know, here she is into her 90s and with you know, a really horrific story to tell. She said, I figure I have two parts of my mind. And the part that remembers all the terrible stuff and the part that remembers all the good stuff. And I just trained my mind not to think about the terrible stuff. It already happened. And, you know, for, I, I, I say that to you and you might think, ah, she could do a thing like that. But I think, ah, how did she do that? Because people people have different physiology and different neurology and different genes and different families of origin and different stories after that. But uh, my sense of post-traumatic stress disorder and all kinds of things that people legitimately suffer for many years, I think to myself, what a great blessing that this woman was magically born with physiology and genes or whatever she had. That cause her to say, listen, this I, I almost lost my life, but since I didn't, there's no point to give the rest of it away. I don't go there. I trained my mind to think about this other stuff. She was the only one of us who was on a walker. <laughs> All these old people. It's so good for your mood. This is like a side thing. You're all probably younger than I am. But when you get old, make sure that you keep yourself cheerful friends. Who are having a good time and cheerful old friends because it gives you such a a boost to think here's a bunch of old people 
who are interested in what's happening now and talking about it and enjoying this very lunch with these very people. And I, which really gets me around to saying, once again, be here now is, if we can do it, a way of not letting the mind fall into the editorial stories that deflate the mind or the, um, this is going to be terrible, this is going to be terrible because of this, it'll be awful. I thought a few of those stories in the last few days. I thought, what if the election in California doesn't go the way I want it to tomorrow? And I think it would have been a really bad thing for the country, for the state, for the world. But I did not watch any of the news all day. I did not turn on any news until 10 o'clock last night when I heard that it, it, it had already been finished. Why should I go through the the distress of being strung along like by watching a, a, a mystery program all day. I'll do something else, it's going to happen. I don't need to fatigue my mind. And really it's about doing wholesome things to keep your mind unfatigued because it really requires unfatigued in order to be able to cushion the blow of what's happening all the time. Hello, I have COVID. Hello, my hysterectomy didn't solve the problem. Hello this, hello that. That's happening to all of us in one way or another every day. And I think that we need to, I, 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 I tried to avoid saying we, it's too, <laughs> uh, what, what's the word for that? It's too pontificating. <laughs> like I'm telling you, I, I have to say, it's much better for me to say, I have found that working very hard at not letting, letting my mind go in the direction of um, deflated doesn't help me out at all. I have to do whatever it is. It's going to calm my nerves. It's going to maybe pick me up. I read you that. I read you that um, email from my friend of gratitude for the people who bring the food, for the people who come, for the people who this. I once had a gratitude practice um, with my friend and colleague, Carol Wilson. We kept it up for about a year, year and a half. It was wonderful. And then her teaching schedule and mine got too complicated. But um, one of the things that we did, one, the, the, the practice was we sent each other an email um, every single day. And the email was not a letter, this happened, that happened. The email was, today I'm grateful for the fact that da 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 And that's all. And it didn't have to say I got your email and I enjoyed it, whatever. Just you're registering your gratitude with the other people. I'm telling you the instructions in case you want to take it up with somebody. This is a great practice. And in the beginning, as somebody talked about, I remember it was Jane Barras, uh, um, James Barras's wife, who in a group said, I have this practice. And I looked at Carol and she said, you want to do that? I said, let's do that. So we did it. And in the beginning, it was easy to do. Today, I was grateful for the fact that it's January and the crocuses are up in California. And today I'm grateful for the fact that that uh, my, my granddaughter is graduating from kindergarten or whatever it was, it was many years ago. <laughs> uh, and so, but eventually, 
going to write every day. You have days when you really are, for whatever reason, feeling not well at the end of the day or when you're writing your gratitude and really be leaguered. But since it's a job and you've taken it on and you have a vow to do it, write down, today I had a terrible day and the meeting at Spur Rock went way too long and I didn't feel they were talking about the right things. And then this is what that happened. And then I had car trouble on the way home. And I really thought this is not my day. I da, da, da. Carrying on all up to the end. And I wrote it long enough to be able to say, and I am so grateful for the fact that I have you on the other end of this email. And I know that you will not stop loving me because I've carried on such a tirade of ego-centered woe all this time and sent it off because as long as you have somebody that you can tell I'm in a really pissy mood and I, I can't drop it down, then you pick yourself up because you have somebody you can tell it to and you feel better because they don't stop loving you for that. So I want to really suggest that for you, especially now that these days we're so much more at home. And, but this is, you know, when people are, I'm noticing uh, that people are saying, take care of yourself. Uh, when they sign letters. I usually say, take care of yourself. And if I know them, I say, I love you at the end of letters. Because what if it's the last one I write to that person? My, to my friend, I don't say that to anybody. I say it to friends. So I want to read you these. Whoa. Very fast the time. So you kind of get the feeling of what I am trying to convey. I do anyway. Uh, those uh, uh, charts of the virtues, which we might start on today, but we definitely, if we don't, we'll do next week. I hope this is the homework for everybody. I hope you'll do it. D download the, uh, I, I think not only download, but print out, because it's good to have, in my experience, both of those papers to be able to look at them at the same time. There was an ad in the New York Times for a uh, cruise line. I won't tell you why cruise line because it's not nice. Because I'm going to say something uh, not exalted about them. Anyway, this is a cruise that you can take to Antarctica. So it's got people walking around. Um, yeah, there it is. It's a it's a, a ship in Antarctica. Yeah, on ice, you know, it's crashed through the ice and the uh, people are on the ice walking around. It doesn't have any penguins particularly there, but it has people. And it says, you should go to Antarctica now because why should you go? To go where few have and even fewer will. That's a reason to go. <laughs> I read this and I could just hear my mother laughing at this with her. <laughs> she had such a, uh, a radar for self-centeredness. My mother on a political scale was far to the left. She, she would have liked Bernie Sanders very much, as I do. Anyway, to go where few have and even fewer will to go where there's no trace of the man-made, to stand in the planet's ultimate gallery, seeing only nature made, form, make, made forms. And because the one lesson the pandemic taught us is now bucket list means to-do list. 
And I thought, is that the lesson that the pandemic taught us? Really? Um, I, I remember telling you a few weeks ago, months ago, there was a cartoon in the New Yorker of two women in their apartment looking out a window of cityscape and uh, uh, talking to her partner there on the couch who's knitting away or something. And she's saying, I am so waiting for this pandemic to be over so I can forget all the deep insights I had during all this time. And I was thinking, I am not hoping that I will forget all the deep insights that I had all the time because I've, I've been thinking from the beginning of it, the deep insight that the whole world can have is look at this, one virus and millions, millions, more than 4 million, 5 million people worldwide now have died. In 1919, 1920, 50 million people died before the virus burned itself out. And they had way less people in the world then. So it's a hundred years later. This is a big, we, you know, this is a big deal. And to have at least the, the, uh, the insight that we are vulnerable, that life is precious, that um, anything can happen at any time. You can take all the precautions and all the supplements and all the vitamins and one nasty virus can do in the whole of the, of the living forms on the planet. You don't know. And that being so, how can we not, first of all, devote ourselves to preserving the planet? That's a whole other thing. But how can we not devote ourselves to each other and take care of each other? The whole thing is we are all imperiled. If not for this virus, I've, I've been hearing more and more broadcasts, you have probably too, about uh, uh, I wasn't sure where I was going to go with this because I got sidetracked into another thing. Oh, about that the virus is going to become endemic. It's not going to get be vanquished. It's not going to go away like nobody has smallpox anymore. Uh, there are things that people don't have anymore. It will be always here. It'll be like a flu shot. And we'll have to keep taking it forever and ever and ever. But then there'll be another virus. And how come that the whole world didn't say, wait a minute, could we not stop despoiling the earth? Could we not stop tearing up all the natural resources? Could we not stop polluting the skies and the water? Could we not stop shooting each other and making the arms industry like the biggest thing in the whole world? Could we not stop killing each other? You know, I, I thought that was the insight that we could learn from this. Could we start making friends with each other? So, of course, I read that article. From, it's probably a little too tough on that. Because, you know, it's a National Geographic. I like them. I have a subscription to them. But the idea of you can be special and go to Antarctic. Okay. <laughs> I just took it. And also because... It had to do with a bucket list. And this is another article out of the New York Times about bucket lists. And it's by Kate Bowler, who's a professor, uh, an associate professor at Duke Divinity School. And she's the host of the podcast, Everything Happens. 
which I meant to check out and listen to. And she's the also the author of the forthcoming book, No Cure for Being Human, which sounds like what we're talking about. There is no cure for being human. Um, so she says, I wish someone had told me that the end of a life is a mathematical equation. I am 35 and doctors tell me I have stage four colon cancer and a slim chance of survival. Suddenly years dwindle into months, months into days and I begin to count them. All my dreams, ambitions, friendships, petty fights, vacations, squeeze must be squeezed into a finite and dwindling number of hours, minutes, seconds. My precarious diagnosis triggers a series of mental health assessments at the cancer clinic, during which lovely, meaning, well-meaning counselors, all seemingly named Caitlin, are telling me to find my meaning. They wonder if I should consider making a bucket list, as many patients have found that process to be clarifying. And she goes on about bucket lists. Not unkindly, and not unkindly about the workers who tell her make a list. And she, she said, I try to make a list, see the pyramids, take a scooter tour around Prince Edward Island, publish a book, make a decent bread, explore Venice with my parents. Said, I'm, as I'm making the bucket list, I'm carefully arranging the pillows to keep my weight off the chemotherapy infusion pack, shifting and harumphing and rearranging blankets, I turn to my husband and I ask him, does this count as a bucket list? And then at the end of her whole article, so the bucket list is a disguise as a dark question, as a challenge. What do you want to do before you die? We all want, in the words of Henry David Thoreau, to live deep and suck out the marrow of life. But is the answer to that desire to suck out the marrow of life a set of experiences? Should we really focus on how many moments we can collect? Go here, go there. There are a hundred or so books with titles like A Thousand Places to See Before You Die. You could learn to hang glide. You could learn to snorkel. You could be at Times Square on New Year's Eve in Paris in the spring. So the problem with aspirational lists is that they often skip the point entirely. Instead of helping us grapple with our finitude, they approximate infinity. A few years ago, the father of one of my divinity students discovered that he is in the last months of his life, much to everyone's astonishment, his father didn't have a wish list, didn't wish for anything at all, not a trip, not a meal. He sat contentedly in his overstuffed recliner in the living room, humming about how much he loved his family. Had he already accomplished everything he wanted to do? Had he seen his kids get married, reach an anniversary, hit some milestone? What? amounts to enough. She says, I tell my, my therapist, I don't feel that way. 
I want two kids. I want to travel the world. I want to be the one to be holding my mother's hand at the end. And I don't know if I will. I thought a lot about that. What's the bucket list? And what's mine? What's yours? And we're going to sit now, but I, uh, I'm going to make this. Uh, when I give you the instructions, I'm going to not say it, sit without thoughts, just rest of my We'll do a, a sit quietly meditation briefly. But then I want you to do um, reflection a little bit. See what you think about from everything that I've talked about. And maybe we'll sit for um, we'll sit for 20 minutes. And then maybe you'll ask questions and we'll talk about it. Because this is a big question. I have all kinds of more stuff that I was going to talk about, which I'll talk about next week. Because I hope you'll come back. I hope you'll bring those papers. And I hope you'll look at them. But I'll tell you more about that at the end and what to do with them. But I'm just thinking that I'm just remembering that the um, I don't know, what's her name? The, the great writer who is no longer living. What will, what are you going to do with this one wild and Mary Oliver, one wild and precious life? What would you do? with this one wild and precious life. You know, I have seen the Eiffel Tower. I'm glad I did. But it, it's, if I, well, first of all, I do know everybody's time is we don't know. Maybe tomorrow, maybe, maybe five years from now, maybe 10, who knows? But is there something I want to be working on accomplishing between now and then? There is, but I'm not saying that. That's what we're going to reflect on. But we said, not that we'll figure it out in 10 minutes or 20 minutes, because I think it's the question of a lifetime. Anyway, let's uh, keep looking at a clock that doesn't work. I mean, that's five minutes slow. So let's sit and I'll remind you, first of all, take a deep breath in, a very big deep breath and blow it out with vigor and breathe in another very deep breath and blow it out also. I don't know why that feels good to know, like too much words went in there, but... and then say to yourself, okay. Here I am now, feeling my body. Where it is. What it's telling me about my experience, where it's hard, where it's soft where it's tingly, where it's warm or cool. How I experience the breath moving in and out of it. 
Let the attention rest with the body in its livelihood. Rest in the awareness of the vibrancy of life. This body is breathing. It's telling you where it is in time and space. It's telling you what's moving in it. I was thinking this morning as I was sitting that an, a, a, a reassurance that I tell myself as I'm sitting, I just sit, locate myself and my feeling as I say to myself, wait, don't do anything. Just wait. Another breath will come, another feeling will come, another movement will present itself, another preference, liking, not liking, and maybe thoughts will present themselves because I said a lot of things and you probably had a lot of thoughts. Sometimes you hear meditation instructions that say when thoughts arise, let them go, go back to your breath. There are particular occasions where that's wise to do and that's skillful. And there are other occasions where reflections are valuable. That's the great thing about human beings and their brains and their neurons and their memories. They can reflect. So we'll sit and we'll reflect about 15 minutes.
maybe in these last moments, you want to open your eyes again and look at the people around. Oh, you don't have people around, no, people on the screen, not around you, but people around you on the screen, near and far, as far away as London, as near for some of us as around the corner. As much as I really love when we're together in Spirit Rock, I really love that uh, we're able to have this transmission for as wide as it can be. I hope, I think I hope, that whenever we get to go back to Spirit Rock in the real and sit there, if we do that, that we'll always continue to stream it. I hope that's what's going to happen. That would be the best way, I think. I wonder if it would be better. This is lovely. See everybody and nobody had to commute. Nobody had to use any fuel or any time. Who knows? That's, enough. That's the title of another Dharma talk. Who knows? Okay.